0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All, I'm Sid Ziegler. When I wrote my book a few years ago, Fair Play, it's about how LGBTQ athletes are claiming their rightful place in sports, I did a chapter on trans athletes, and in that chapter there was only a passing reference about Myanna Bagger. That was a mistake. Even I, after working at Outsports for 15 years, underestimated the impact that Myanna Bagger had on sports. Myanna was a a golfer, a a trans woman, who earned uh, the uh, ability to play professional golf. This was back in the early 2000s, before most any other trans athlete. We knew about Renee Richards, but the likes of Chris Mosier, and Fallon Fox had not come along. And I started talking with Mayanna a couple of years ago and found that her perspectives about trans athletes and trans inclusion was different from a lot of the trans athletes that I had talked to, that she uh, didn't really have the answers. Uh, she had a, a lot of insight and a lot of perspective. But like me, she was really struggling to figure out what the quote-unquote correct trans inclusion policy was and we've talked for hours and hours and hours since if you follow Myanna Bagger on Twitter or or seen her speak chances are you've agreed with some of what she said and chances are equally good that you've disagreed with a lot of what she's said and that's why I wanted to have her on the podcast to talk about her perspective as a trailblazing Trans athlete in women's sports, uh, but somebody who hasn't been in sports in a few years, and somebody who really has a, a lot of nuance to her perspectives on these issues. Um, I, I really appreciate every time I get uh, the chance to talk to mana She raises so many questions uh, in in my head as I continue to try to understand the 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 quote unquote perfect uh, trans inclusion policies and ways to support trans athletes. Anyhow, I hope you uh, enjoy my enlightening and interesting informational conversation with trailblazing trans athletes, uh, former professional golfer, Myana Bagger. I'm here with myanna Bagger. Well, actually, I'm not here with Myana Bagger. Myana is in Australia. Um, But we're talking with Mayanna today, and one of the things, Mayanna, that you have said in the past, and I literally wrote this quote down. You wrote, I want to crawl into a hole sometimes. And what you meant was that you felt that some trans activists and some women in sports make you, you find yourself unable to agree with both sides, and that you find yourself kind of in the middle of all this conversation. Um, Talk to me about just wanting to crawl into a hole sometimes when we talk about these issues.
1: (laughs) Oh, God, it's a multifaceted question, a faceted question. I mean, you're right. Um, I follow so many of the conversations that you see on social media or that I see on social media, mostly on Twitter. And it really is mind-boggling the pos- the position that so many people take that seems entirely inflexible, focused purely on inclusion at any cost, regardless of any other, should we say, scientific facts or even you know biological sex, um, which does of course uh, exist. And the the assertions that are made uh, are so often just simply dumbfounding and as a transsexual woman myself I am so embarrassed and belittled that I get somehow associated with that mantra that's going on that yes I do want to disappear because there's just there is no discussing with so many of these people they're not open to Um, they don't appear to be open to a rational conversation with every scenario and every possibility in mind uh, to to weigh up a a reasonable conclusion. Um, So yes I've I do often just feel like disappearing these days yeah these days just I don't know yeah even even changing my name moving somewhere disappearing that's it I've kind of done my bit and I'm, I'm going to get on with my life because I can't. I can't deal with this.
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, before the, I started recording, I, I asked you where you were, and you said Australia, and um, you seemed reticent to tell me exactly where you were, and I actually noticed <laughs> that.
1: Um, yeah, that's interesting. Actually, it's. Uh, I guess I am, in some part, quite a private person. And especially when we're getting to this interconnectivity in the world today and social media and public access. Um, I think it's reasonable to be um, a little bit protective of maybe every detail of what we're doing and where we are. That, that should just be left to our friends and our close network of people and family.
0: You transitioned decades ago, and uh, paved a way to, along with other people, working with other people, paved a way for yourself to participate in elite-level women's golf. What did you learn about transitioning from your own transition and then uh, and continuing to participate in golf and, and then, again, returning to golf, going to golf in a, at a professional level? What did you learn about transitioning?
1: There's so much. I mean, obviously, transition is primarily about one's own personal identity and life in in everyday society. You know, sport is very much uh, an inconsequential thing in that. For me, sport, or golf at least, has always been a part of my life. And I, I guess there's probably lots of ways I could answer this question. I've always been very passionate about golf, and I've always practiced a lot. But I think it's important for me to state that when I did transition, you know, I've, ever since I was probably 12 years old, I've had these dreams and desires of playing professional golf, playing on tour and being the Kyrie the Webs, the Annika Sorosons, the, the Tiger Woods and the Greg Normans. Um, but when I transitioned, I thought, okay, well, that's that's it for professional golf for touring golf that's not going to be possible anymore and that was fine it was a a small sacrifice to make for the sake of having some comfort in my own personal identity and you know being able to to function in in daily life so obviously the the whole transition process is obviously a huge deal to go through with everything that's involved in dealing with family and friends and personal changes and identity changes and documents and navigating relationships and friendships and God knows everything else. So there are so many aspects to consider. So I'm not, you know, I guess I'm not quite sure when you say, what did I learn and experience through transition? Well, life, you know, what does anyone learn in life? growing up every one of us has this unique experience obviously you know transitioning in this context is a is somewhat of a a unique experience that that's for sure and it's not one that many people can relate to um it's kind of a you know it's a weird and odd process but there's a point where we just have to accept that okay this is me this is my lot now i'm going to make the best of it
0: there's not there's not a lot of research about trans athletes and a lot of what we know is anecdotal. And you and I have talked in the past about what you saw um, about your about your game and 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 uh, driving distance and um, and around the green different 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 ways that you were affected. Talk to me about that.
1: I have of course just my own personal experiences which are not experimental or analytical just purely observational with a sample size of one. Um, The comparisons that I have was from years of playing on a golf course where I was a member in Australia but that's kind of irrelevant really where where it is. And the kind of shots that I used to hit the clubs, the the distances I would hit, the clubs I would use on par threes, and when I transitioned, I pretty much stopped playing golf. I think I played maybe two rounds of golf in five years, so I really did stop. I let the membership go, um, because I had a a journey to go through, and I had full-time day work and everything else that you have to go through. and. When I started playing golf again, I went back for, you know, various reasons to play at the golf course where I used to be a member. Um, and the holes hadn't changed much. And I remembered the clubs that I used to hit and I could see that my driving distances were shorter. Um, on par three holes, there's one in particular that I know I used to use an eight iron and I then used a six iron and shots into par fours like hitting a, you know an 80-meter sand iron where you sort of pitch it up and get a lot of spin. There was a particular hole I used to play with others, and we'd, we'd have a play and see how much backspin we could get and how far back up the hill we could spin the ball. And uh, I tried that shot again, and there was not a hint of backspin. There was nothing happening. So there was a bunch of, of power lost in the game, which was quite clear. But obviously there's multiple factors involved in that. The fact that I hadn't played for five years. Um, the fact that I was five years older, of course, uh, at that point, you know, at that age, still uh, around 30 years old, is probably a uh, somewhat negligible. So there's always a whole number of variables that need to be considered. But there were some definite impacts on, on the reduction of my game. And uh, I don't know, if I guess if I go on... Further to when I started playing golf again and I got invited to join different uh, teams and squads and, and play with uh, other girls around the state in South Australia, uh, I was initially hesitant, thinking, hmm, you know, is, is this okay? But I saw that my game was actually no different to, you know, the majority of top players in the state. Um, I wasn't hitting it any further. Um, there was nothing different about my game and it was really just down to the the scoring and getting the ball in the hole and the fewest shots possible.
0: And so again after transition you started playing uh, with the women in the area, you noticed that your game was very similar to theirs.
1: Yeah, it's it was a really gradual process and Um, I also like to voice the fact that my journey back into playing with the women uh, was very much one of invitation. It was never a concerted effort by me to go and play competitively in golf. I I just joined a golf club again because I love golf. I've always loved golf and I love the personal challenge. I slowly started meeting more people and I was invited uh, by others, to join <clears throat> these teams and squads and play some of the, uh, the inter-club competitions and state events. Um, and all, all the while people, you know, familiar with my my past, I was always very open about it. And um, everyone, sort of, well, not, not everyone, obviously there was a, a number of people that were very hesitant and uh, questioned my place in playing golf with the girls but they gradually all got to play with me we got to play with each other and we saw that there was no difference in our game they could see that i wasn't bombing drives you know 50 meters past everyone well even the top players we were just equal in distances so yes the the game the games were definitely comparable um in various different locations courses and and different uh, players from different clubs
0: you talk about your personal history and, and I I really think and and over the last over the 20 years of running out sports people understanding the history of LGBTQ athletes is so important and frankly um you know I did not understand your full journey and years ago and um I to talk about what did you have to do to earn the right to earn the just the invitation to compete on ladies professional tours
1: oh that's a whole other big step goodness me um you know it obviously started with amateur golf in south australia at first with a gradual exposure into that and then playing uh, some of the, the more main events around the state, which were also national events. Um, <clears throat> I was then, I was being watched by state selectors. They were you know, informing themselves of as many issues as they could. And I was then asked to join the state squad for South Australia. And then I was representing South Australia with the interstate um, competition in Australia uh again with everyone with full knowledge of who i am and what my past was but at that stage when it goes to professional golf it's run by different bodies um slightly different regulations and not so much to do with amateur golf and all of the professional golf tours around the world prohibited um, me or someone like me from joining the tour is because they had an eligibility that stated a person must be female at birth. And uh, when so I always had the view that, well, you know, I can't turn professional anyway. But after a few years of playing the national level golf that I was in Australia and really having to battle hard to to make my way and to get any decent results. I I got to the end of that. I, I guess if you can call it an amateur career, and after the years of playing and being accepted and you know working as hard as anyone else to get up the ranks, I and starting to do a bit more reading on what little you know the science and research I could find on the impacts of transition and the loss of testosterone, reduction in muscle mass and and strength and other aspects of performance uh and with my acceptance in australia i've started to wonder if the professional golf tours might actually consider reviewing their rules i'd seen that the initial ruling came in i think with the usga in the us uh, the united states golf association and i think it came from a transitioned woman in 19 oh, was it 87 83 or 87 charlotte wood i think if i get the name right <clears throat> that played in a a, a us event the us amateur and at the time there were no regulations preventing a transitioned woman from competing but i think um she might have been sort of middle-aged or in her 50s and you know, generally due to a lot of prejudice. There just seemed to be a decision that, oh, hang on, we're we're not going to have this happen in golf. And they just brought in a ruling to say, must be female at birth. That's it. And no more said about it. Obviously, there was no support or, should we say, justification with research or science. It wasn't really seen to be necessary. So my view was that the original ruling was not based on say any supporting science other than the fact that, okay, males and females are different. Okay. Fair enough. But with the acceptance in Australia of my amateur golf, I thought, hmm, okay, I wonder if it might be reasonable. And I started writing to the three of the main golf tours around the world. So that was the European tour, the US, the LPGA tour and the tour in Australia. And I was writing to all the CEOs and I'd present kind of what science uh, and and data that i could provide as well as my own experience and i corresponded with them they each you know said they would have a look at it they started convening different panels of in quotes experts and you know everyone's getting lumped into a territory that is completely foreign to them it's an issue this issue of transition and altering the body in this context is something that everyday people you know simply don't even spare a thought to you know not like people today i mean it's on everyone's screens these days but you know 20 30 years ago it simply wasn't so experts were kind of whoever people thought some sort of doctor or someone that might have some knowledge of the the human body and biology etc. So they were all made best efforts and having a look at the details and it I guess for my benefit it happened to coincide with the IOC the International Olympic Committee um, addressing the same issue and there was discussions going on about them addressing transitioned um, athletes in sport in at the Olympics, and they of course ended up releasing their initial, you know, the Stockholm consensus on reassigned athletes in sport. I think two thousand and three, um, which I'd have to say worked in my favour because when they came out with that policy sort of pretty much giving access to surgically transitioned men and women to Olympic sport, provided a bit of knowledge and comfort and all sort of backing that the highest sporting body in the world has granted this access. And it sort of paved the way for other tours to do so or other sports bodies to do so as well. But still, nobody really understood what they were doing. So they all pretty much, um, copied the IOC policy but it seemed that because of their lack of knowledge they also added a bit more criteria probably for more legal protections for themselves and almost added a, a greater stringency to the eligibility criteria and in the in that context some of them might have been reasonable and others were Kind of obscene. We're, we're pretty extreme, uh, including the USGA uh, regulation. So, you know, with some continued correspondence uh, with the golf tours, I also ended up. I thought I've got to go and meet these people. I've got to talk to them face to face. They've got to see the person that this is addressing, rather than the the, the distant scribblings on paper. So I. I uprooted my life in Australia, I left a job of 16 years, I sold my house, car possessions, I sold everything so I could go and travel to wherever I needed to go. And for me, I mean, I'm you know born in Denmark, in, in Copenhagen, and I wanted to get back to, to Denmark. So I got back to Europe and then I started showing up to a few different European tour events and then meeting some more of the players and but meeting the, uh, the officials. Uh, to sit and, you know, discuss with them so they could see who I am, so we can have more of a face-to-face conversation and dynamic conversation as well. Um, so, uh, you know, I like to think all of these aspects um, were very much obviously part of the the role of the tours, eventually changing rules. So it started with a sort of a satellite tour, a feeder tour in Sweden, I wrote to them and said hey guys what do you reckon and they looked at it for a couple of weeks and wrote back to me and said yeah we reckon it's kind of cool so you're welcome to come and play so the first tour i played was in sweden um and then from there i met the, the people in europe and um can't quite remember the the process i think it was the europe the ladies european tour changed their rules then the alpg in australia changed their rules then i think there was a change in canada south africa also changed their rules then there was a change on the lgu in the uk um but for the time being the lpga tour in the states they kept their ruling in place um and uh, you know ended up changing years later so anyway that's kind of the i don't know the the long short story of that process if you like
0: (laughs) It's interesting. And again, I think people it's important for people to understand that uh, where how we got to where we are today. And you're a big part of that. And one of the things that I again, as I've mentioned, you and I have talked several times. Every time is I learned so much. And one of the interesting things that you said to me before Um, Here you are, someone who has uh, applied to participate in professional sport, women's sports. You have earned that right. And you told me that before that elite and professional sports, they're not human rights. They're a luxury and no one has a right to participate in them. It's a luxury. Talk to me about that perspective.
1: I agree. Um, especially, you know, elite and pro and making a living, earning money from sport. Yes, that, that is a luxury. That's absolutely not a human right. And I don't think you can really call sport a human right either. But that's not to say that, you know, people shouldn't have access to sport. I mean, everyone should have access to sport. Everyone should have access to the, the multitude of benefits that sport can bring, you know, in the sense of social interaction, to fitness, to energy, to achieving goals, to competition, community, so, so many aspects. And I think it is so important, but I don't think that should be, get confused with a, a, a human right. Um, and then going to the Olympic levels and the, the professional career um with payment yeah. now that's that's part of our, our modern modern luxury uh, you know that was never always the case it just happens our world seems to love sports so much and uh, it's just become the big commercial sh- machine um, that it is today um, I don't want to get I don't want people to get it wrong that I still feel I've earned my right to compete as a on in professional women's sport, I always had and still have the mindset that okay, I was given access based on the information that was had at the time, but by no means should that be set in stone. And I've always said we need to be open to continued research that comes along, which is now slowly happening. Um, to consider the fact that, well, maybe it's not okay, maybe it is okay, but more research is to be needed. There are clear differences between biological males and females, and that can't be denied. And it doesn't matter how people might want to muddy those waters with terminology and concepts. It's like, look, that the science very clearly states there is a clear difference. The big issue is obviously, what is the impact of transition? The loss of testosterone. How long does that happen? To what degree um, is the effect or the impact on a on a physical body? Um, and does that confer to reasonable reduction in performance and strength to give access to to women's sport? And you know, honestly, the more and more science is coming out. The more it's saying, well, actually, no, um, not really sure it is, and using the argument that, look, there is such a broad overlap between men and women that it's not to say that all m- men are better at sport than all women. Nobody's ever tried to,
0: of course, uh, yes, no question, Im-
1: imply that, yeah. Um, but there are again are so many different aspects to uh, to consider that that they can't be covered or engaged in in simple conversation. You can't have a simple, quick conversation about this.
0: And, and so, you and I disagree slightly on this. I, I personally want. I want to find a path for every trans girl and every trans woman t- to participate in women's sports, and I would, I would go a step further, and I would probably say that at this point, I believe it's it's there's a right there. However, I do believe that there uh there need to be steps taken, and one of the things that I struggle with. Mayana, like this, this is this is my biggest struggle on this topic. Is what what do those steps look like? What should policies look like? How should they differ from sport to sport and age to age? And and when I think about this, I get caught in this endless maze, and and I just I kind of every time I engage myself in it, I give up do you have any insights into what co- policies and considerations might look like that i should be thinking about, about and, and 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 international and national governing bodies should be thinking about
1: i have much the same as you i have for years with other friends and colleagues around the world to come down to that question of what would be an ideal policy that would cover all bases and give reasonable access to transition people in sport. And I have never been able to arrive at one. And I've never heard anyone else really come up with it other than simply limiting sport to biological sex, which may in the end end up being that's the only really workable scenario. Let's see if there is scope for something with broader inclusion of diversity in the human race and um, with uh, with diversity of, uh, of gender and transition as, as well. Um, and again, when you consider all the, the variables, it is so difficult to come up with it because you could, you might find in some sports, look, it's really not an issue, go your hardest. And then in other sports, I guess if you pick things like contact sports or where you know size and mass uh, is really a, a determining factor well maybe it's not reasonable in those and then you can say well okay well if it's okay in some and not okay in others how do you define which sports are acceptable and which ones are not and if that's the case which criteria do you then use to determine that and who gets to determine it Who who is the rule maker here and on what grounds, on what science. And then there are other variables to come in. Um, you you get a, a woman who's six and a half foot tall and weighs this, uh, compared to a man that's five and a half foot tall and doesn't weigh very much. Of course, that starts complicating things. And I, and I think we'll leave intersex variations out of this as a, as well, because I think that is a different scenario and just confuses the issue um and you can start having a look at so many other different biological markers and variations and time frames and you start the more you look at it the more variables you get the more complex it becomes to the point where sorry is this getting too complex I mean is this really how sport moves forward with so many hoops and jumps and everything that you have to go through and different measures to be eligible for sport, have we simply lost sight of it and go, look, okay, let's just make the hard decision, the easy decision, and it's down to biological sex. The sex people were observed at birth and that's it. So part of the problem is with anything in sport like this, and you can have a look from the, the recent CAS decision, which centred around Casta Semenya, of course, with intersex athletes in sport, sorry, while I just said intersex shouldn't be included in this. But the, the point I'm making is even CAS, uh, I think the IAAF stated that their policy is discriminatory. I can't remember the specific wording, but they did state the policy is discriminatory, But this it is it is to some a reasonable degree i think it brings to the light that any policy or any position taken in sport in some fashion is going to be or be seen to be discriminatory and someone is going to be excluded for one reason or another but i think there is just going to have to be a policy with reasonable exclusion based on reasonable grounds and that's just the end of it the problem is everyone wants sport to be totally inclusive and i also think that's impossible and unreasonable
0: yeah i think their point was that sports uh, as they are structured today are inherently discriminatory because you have men's sports and you have women's sports and of course you have some sports like equestrian that are are um, non-gendered but you you have sports uh, div- most sports divided by gender in large part to protect participation by by women and and that was their argument that 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 it with sports as structured today most sports have men's category and women's category you are preventing the men from participating in the women's category <laughs> And you're protecting predict- yeah. the women from to participating in the men's category. And and in the United States, we have a separate is not equal um, uh, a kind of uh, belief that if two things are separate, they cannot inherently be equal. And you can see that in the treatment of the, of, of two genders of sports. But everyone kind of looks the other way with that. So that was their argument.
1: I I don't know. It doesn't really sort of hold much water either. I mean, by the same token, uh, does children's sport keep 18-year-olds out from competing with other 12-year-olds, you know, for obvious reasons? Um, And, yeah, you know, we all know there's clear biological differences and, like, you know, so many people, you say, oh, we should have just one category, all sport, and everyone compete together. But we know that's not going to be... um, feasible or reasonable because there will be no women will be represented in the higher levels of sport because men will outperform in pretty much everything and that's shown through all of the world records in and all of the times in in running and swimming and so many different events that you know teenage boys i think 16 year olds um there's, what's the number? I can't remember the number if it's some 1,000 or 1,500 teenage boys will run faster than the women's world record for a 100-meter sprint.
0: There, There is, I, I tell people all the time, and you've said both things. Every man is not going to run faster than every woman. And at the same time, at the elite levels, at the competition levels, given age group, any age group, Men or boys outperform the 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 women or girls at their age group.
1: Mm. exactly
0: so so yeah. I, so again, <laughs> <laughs> I so appreciate that you are stuck in the same maze that I am, but is there any guidance that you would offer things to look at regarding a, a potential policy? Or series of policies, or multifaceted policy, that could possibly help us find a place where most of us can meet.
1: I'm actually not sure I can. Um, we're screwed. And <laughs>
0: and pardon? If you can't, we're done. I don't know.
1: Yeah,
0: I know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's over. <laughs> we're stuck in a we're stuck in a battle for the rest of our lives. Oh.
1: Well that's it and there's a point where a decision has to be made and to be honest the, the most comprehensive approach I've seen at this happened recently earlier this year by World Rugby which I'm sure many people have uh, read about, heard about, um, I'm familiar with some of the people that were included in the, the round table um, in their conference. Including, you know, uh, developmental biologist Emma Hilton, and you've got um, sports scientist Ross Tucker from South Africa. These are really smart, intelligent, credentialed people, they have the qualifications to be speaking on this. You know, I someone like me, um, I'm out, I don't have a position in this discussion anymore. It needs to be taken on an aspect of, of science. Um, and also law. Now, world rugby put together the largest collection of people to do their best to cover absolutely every facet of competitive sport in in world in rugby uh, that I've ever seen. And I think they're still working on com- you know presenting and coming around to to their eventual conclusions. And I'm sure they're having a hell of a time to put it together. Again, someone is going to be put out and and the thing is you know I'm obviously in a rather tenuous position because and and somewhat hypocritical because Here am I, someone that's enjoyed an 11-year sporting career in women's professional golf, got access to play, and here I am turning around, my career's finished, you know, it's over like four, four and a half years ago, and now I'm saying, no, maybe we shouldn't be allowed to compete. I'm, I'm not allowed to stand up and say that. So, and I'm, that's also part of why I think I should step off from this conversation. Because I'm, because of the career I've had, because of the role that I've played, um, and the conversation needs to be taken over by, by others more credentialed, knowledgeable people, uh, in this conversation, which again I view that world rugby has done. So for me to present some guidance or idea of okay, what policy might sporting bodies want to consider and which direction to go in, well. I'd say follow what real world rugby has done and get the people involved in that because that's the way it should go.
0: I have not played a professional women's golf, but I will tell you that I think that Mayanna, you belonged in professional women's golf. Um, you and I have a slightly divergent perspectives on this and I I uh, from, from what I've seen from the world rugby um, discussions I have not liked what I've seen come out of it um, I don't believe that it just a, a, a top-to-bottom ban makes any sense um, but but this is what I love about you we can talk about this we can agree here and disagree there and we can have real conversations about this and that's why I wanted to have you on and because I just I feel like there's a real conversation with you, that, that you come from a particular perspective and come from a particular history and experience, and I learn from you every time. And I just, I, I so I know, I, I really appreciate you um, being willing to step out and, and talk about this because I learn a lot from you.
1: Oh, thanks, Sid, <laughs> it's it hard hard to, to say. Let's, let's end and-
0: on something um, really positive who who are some of the trans women in sports other than yourself that you admire or and maybe trans men in sports just trans people in sports that that you admire their what the work they've done the com, the participation they've demonstrated
1: i don't know if i could name one or two people in particular that i might single out i'm not focused on i don't know well not idolizing is not the right word or respecting in that regard but i think anyone that has lived this life a transition and dares to step forward and step out and speak their story and maybe advocate for some progress i have respect for all of them um as long as there is reasonable Uh, and respectful dialogue in the process. And unfortunately, there's a lot that don't engage that way. They go quite the opposite way and are downright abusive and offensive and demanding in their journey, which isn't doing anyone any favours, and more to the point, is not doing transitioned and trans and gender diverse people any favours at all. If you you know if we want to be included in society, anyone of difference wants to be included. I'm pretty sure the worst way to go about it is aggressively and demanding. How about going through a process of open dialogue, uh, education, informing, uh, and two-way discussion, like let take everyone on the journey on this growth you can't all of a sudden just lumber on someone's doorstep and go blah 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 this is me and i demand this and i want to do that you damn well let me in it's like hang on who who the hell are you what huh no you're not going to win any friends that way you always engage people and i i I like to think that's part of what made my journey possible as well uh i was always open to, to discussion i was I invited people to come and talk to me. Like, if you have issue, please come and talk to me. Come and tell me. It's not that I want to show you that I'm right, but I'd love to hear your concerns. What do I not consider? What do I need to hear from you? And, you know, I was kind of sad to learn when I first played my interstate series in amateur golf that I found out afterwards that all of the other girls, they were asked to not voice any objection, not to speak up and not make a noise. I was there and that was it. And there's a point where that kind of thing might be reasonable but as this was a kind of a first case scenario um i i prefer people being informed it was part of my personal journey and life even with all of my friends i always made a point of finding grabbing my friends and talking to them individually let them ask any questions they had like let's clear up um any misconceptions or misunderstanding you know people always fear what they don't understand um so help people understand help inform people you're going to get make progress in a much easier fashion sorry if i got a little bit you know to de- de- detract distracted or distracted from the, the main point there um uh, yeah no, no, this,
0: is, this is this is that that has been my uh my tactic for 20 years is that uh, I can jump up and down and yell and scream at people, but if I kind of if I kind of step over to their territory and kind of try talk their language a little bit and ask them questions and let them ask me questions, I found we can find uh, places of common ground a lot faster. There are, of course, I will say, moments when I have found uh, the other, position to be um, highly problematic, to be uh, very, uh, to be prejudiced and bigoted. And there are moments in my career when I have stomped my feet and said, no, no, you've gone too far. But for the most part, I have tried to meet people uh, in, in their own home and talk with them. And I've found that that dialogue most of the time not always helps smooth things over and helps build understanding and I think that's what you're saying
1: yeah yeah pretty much
0: well again Mayanna thank you so much for 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 joining me and um I won't give everyone the coordinates of where you're at so (laughs) (laughs) though I'd love to stop by for a gelato but maybe another time
1: maybe another time yeah maybe come and find me in Thailand sometime <laughs> when when I eventually get back to traveling let's hope it's sooner rather than later
0: what I love about talking with Mayanna is we can agree here disagree there uh, be on polar opposite somewhere else and still have a, a, a thoughtful conversation so I, I really appreciate Mayanna for putting herself out there and joining me for the conversation. You can follow her on Twitter at Bagger. That's M-I-A-N-N-E-B-A-G-G-E-R. Be sure to join me next week. There is someone who has been involved with Team USA Swimming for years, is now headed back to college as a coach at a major program. Uh, He talks about coming out in the sport uh, and we also have an interesting conversation about why there happen to be uh, pro- proportionately so many more out men swimming than most any other sport. Anyhow, I hope you have a, a great week and a, if you're in the United States, a good Labor Day weekend and we will talk to you soon.